The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Genesis, and today the next passage we come to is Genesis 3, 8 through 24. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The man called his wife, his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat it and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground. From which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Thank you, Shane. Let's pray once again this morning. Um, Father, we read in Psalm. 19, that your law is perfect, reviving the soul. Your testimony is sure, making wise the simple. Your precepts are right, giving joy to the heart. And your commandments are pure, enlightening the eyes. So please, Lord, as we dig into your word this morning, we ask that you would revive our souls. Give wisdom to our minds, impart joy to our hearts, and enlighten 
our eyes. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The famed Christian apologist C.S. Lewis once wrote that I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Uh, Lewis wrote this line in an essay that he delivered to the Oxford Socratic Club in 1962, and I'd actually like to do something I don't typically do and, and read an extended quote um, a, a portion of this essay leading up to this line so that we can better grasp what C.S. Lewis is saying here. Like I said, it's an extended quote. It requires some deliberate mental energy, I'd say, to understand, but I do believe it is incredibly worthwhile. So Lewis writes, I was taught at school when I had done a sum to prove my answer. The proof or verification of my Christian answer to the cosmic sum is this. When I accept theology, I, find, I may find difficulties at this point or that in harmonizing it with some particular truths which are embedded in the scientific worldview. But I can get in or allow for science as a whole. If, on the other hand, I swallow the scientific worldview as a whole, then not only can I not fit in Christianity, I cannot even fit in science. <laughs> if minds are entirely dependent on brains, and brains on biochemistry, and biochemistry, in the long run, on the meaningless flux of atoms, I cannot understand how the thought of those minds should have any more significance than the sound of wind in the trees. And this is, to me, the final test. This is how I distinguish dreaming and waking. When I am awake, I can, in some degree, account for and study my dream. The dragon that pursued me last night can be fitted into my waking world. I know that there are such things as dreams. I know that I had eaten an indigestible dinner. I know that a man of my reading might be expected to dream of dragons. But while in the nightmare, I could not have fitted in my waking experience. The waking world is judged more real because it can thus contain the dreaming world. The dreaming world is judged less real because it cannot contain the waking one. For the same reason, I am certain that in passing from the scientific point of view to the theological, I have passed from dreaming to waking. Christian theology can fit in science, art, morality, and the sub-Christian religions. The scientific point of view cannot fit in any of these things not even science itself. I believe that Christianity, or I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Now, if you kind of got lost in that quote, don't worry. Uh, the point Lewis is trying to get across is that one indicator that Christianity is true is that it makes sense of so many other things in this world. 
In fact, unlike other philosophies, Christianity makes sense of everything that we see and experience. It explains why our world is the way it is and why we are the way we are. It answers life's biggest questions in a profoundly satisfying way. And as we're going to see this morning, a key passage for several of these answers is Genesis 3, 8 through 24. You know, people might wonder, why is there so much suffering and hardship and even evil in this world? Why do people get cancer and suffer brain injuries and experience abuse? Or to tie it to current events, why do tragedies like Hurricane Ian happen and bring massive destruction? Why are people like Vladimir Putin willing to inflict such devastation in the pursuit of their own glory? Well, the ultimate answer to all these questions is found here in Genesis 3. Now, last week, in looking at the first part of this chapter, we saw the serpent, under Satan's influence, successfully persuading Eve to disobey God by eating fruit from the tree of which God had commanded her not to eat. And Adam also followed her into sin by eating of that same fruit. This is an event that theologians refer to as the fall, because humanity fell into sin. And so that was the title of the the previous message, The Fall. And now the title of this message, as you can see, is The Fallout of the Fall, because it describes the consequences of Adam and Eve's disobedience against God. Not only for them, but really for the entire created order. In many ways, it really is like nuclear fallout. You know, if a nuclear weapon were to be detonated in a populated area, it would certainly kill, a, that initial blast would, would kill a massive number of people. Yet the radioactive fallout of that initial explosion is even more deadly and can make an entire geographic area uninhabitable for a long time. Likewise, Adam and Eve's rebellion against God has had consequences on a massive scale, a cosmic scale even, consequences that have echoed throughout the quarters of all subsequent history and that affect your life and my life extensively every single day. So let's pick up the story in verse 8, which describes the immediate aftermath of Adam and Eve's disobedience. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So immediately, Adam and Eve experienced something that they've never experienced before. A sense of shame. And the sound of God walking in the garden that would have previously brought them so much delight, now brings dread. Then verses 9 through 11. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, obviously, God knows the answers to these questions, but is simply seeking to draw Adam out and get him to confess what he's done. 
And by the way, that's a great approach to take in our ministry efforts to, to other people, especially those of us who are parents with younger children. Uh, whenever possible, use thoughtful questions to lead your children to recognize their sin for what it is and to confess that sin. Draw them out with the kinds of questions that we see here in these verses. Unfortunately, though, Adam and Eve don't respond very well. We read in verses 12 and 13, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So both of them try to shift the blame, don't they? Instead of taking responsibility for their disobedience, both of them try to point the finger at somebody else and say it, it was their fault. Adam blames Eve, and Eve blames the serpent. And in fact, if you read closely, you can even detect in Adam's answer a hint of accusation against God. Adam says that his sin is the fault of who? The woman who you gave to be with me, as if it were God's fault for putting such a woman in the garden. And dear friends, isn't that our tendency as well? To shift the blame for our sin, to make excuses for our sin, to try to justify our sin, or at least make it seem maybe not as bad as it really is. How often, for example, do you hear people blaming their circumstances for the sinful things that they do? Um, one particular tendency that seems to be especially common right now is when people focus on victimhood, sometimes very legitimate victimhood, sometimes not, but victimhood nonetheless as the reason why they or others sin. And so you might hear things like, oh, you know, the reason I cheated on my spouse is because I had a difficult childhood, or maybe I suffered childhood abuse, or, or, or maybe the reason why this person stole something is because they're a victim of systemic injustice. We really are living in a culture of victimhood. And so those are just a few of the ways in which it seems like we're always looking to shift the blame for our sin, just like Adam and Eve did in Genesis 3. Yet as we continue on in Genesis 3, we see that God isn't buying any of it and is instead committed to holding people responsible for the sins they commit. And because of that, he announces some of the consequences, first for the serpent, then for the woman, and then finally for the man. Look at verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So the curse God pronounces on the serpent includes not only crawling on its belly, and eating dust, but also something very interesting, a fatal injury to its head by the offspring of the woman. And notice there the singular pronoun used to refer to the woman's offspring. 
right? It says, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Singular, right? So this is a reference not just to the, the totality of the woman's offspring, but to one of her descendants in particular. And looking back on this passage through the lens of the New Testament, we now know that descendant to be none other than Jesus. Satan would succeed in giving Jesus a painful bruise on his heel, as it were, in his death on the cross. But Jesus would give Satan a fatal bruise on his head, so to speak, by victoriously resurrecting from the dead and destroying Satan's schemes. God then speaks to the woman in verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So God announces consequences in two of the areas that are traditionally uh, most important to a woman childbearing and marriage. Uh, regarding marriage, as we discussed a few weeks ago, uh, this is one of the key reasons for marital conflict. Yeah, the woman, it says, will desire to uh, basically usurp her husband's place as the leader in that relationship, and the husband, in turn, will seek to rule over her in a sinful and domineering way, right? The roots of both feminism and chauvinism right there. And then finally, God turns to Adam in verses 17 through 19. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So just as God announced consequences in two of the areas that are most often uh, important to a woman, uh, childbearing and marriage, he now pronounces consequences related to what's usually one of the most foundational elements of a man's life, his work. Work, of course, existed before the fall, but now work will be hard. And not only that, God also says that people, in general, are now going to die. They came from dust, God says, and it's to dust that they'll return. Then in the subsequent verses, God expels the man and woman from the garden, uh, picturing the broken relationship they now have with God. And instead of being close to God, they're alienated from God. And so the message... That should just jump off the page from all of these verses we've gone over is that sin has consequences. Many times Satan will try to convince us that there won't ever be a price to pay for our sin. Sort of a what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas sort of a mentality. Because remember, the serpent told Eve straight up back in uh, Genesis 3-4, you will not surely die. And yet we see here that that couldn't be more wrong. Likewise, for us today, even if we 
end up receiving God's forgiveness for our sins, which, praise God, is available to us. We'll talk more about that momentarily. But even if we do receive God's forgiveness, we still will often experience earthly consequences for our sins. Right? The, person, the, the, the promiscuous person might be forgiven for their promiscuity, but still have an STD. The drunk driver might be forgiven for his drunkenness and his irresponsibility, but still have a very large fine to pay. The habitual gossip might be forgiven of her gossip, but still not have the trust of those around her. Sin has consequences. And that brings us to the main idea that we've really been stating in different ways repeatedly as we've walked through this text, which is that Adam and Eve's rebellion had devastating consequences for them and all creation. That's the main idea of this passage. Adam and Eve's rebellion had devastating consequences for them and all creation. Instead of pleasure, they'll now have pain. Instead of harmonious relationships, they'll now have dysfunctional relationships. Instead of easy work, they'll now have toilsome work. Instead of closeness to God, they'll now be alienated from God. And instead of life, they'll now have death. In fact, every single painful and difficult thing that we experience in this world can ultimately be traced back to the events of Genesis 3. Right? This is why there's so much suffering and hardship in the world. This is why people get sick. This is why natural disasters happen. This is why our world today is such a broken place. Adam and Eve's rebellion had devastating consequences, not just for them, but for the entire created order. The nuclear weapon that was detonated in Genesis 3 has resulted in radioactive fallout being scattered all over the world and through all subsequent generations. Yet one of the biggest consequences of the fall is something that we haven't actually talked about yet today. It's that every one of us now has a fallen and sinful nature that we've inherited from Adam. Like a poison, sin entered the human race through Adam and has subsequently been passed down through each generation to all of his descendants. And as a result, we carry that poison within us. And it reaches to the very core of our being. We have a sinful nature. And that's why we sin. So understand that the, it's not that um, you and I aren't sinners because we commit sin. Actually, the other way around. We commit sins because we're sinners by nature. Those of you who are parents know that you don't have to teach your children how to lie or manipulate or act selfishly. They already know how to do those things many times very well. Right? It's like a, like a phone that comes preloaded with certain apps on. You know, children just seem to come preloaded with Sinful tendencies uh, because of the sinful nature that we all possess. As David states in Psalm 51, 5, 
Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And as Paul writes in Romans 7, 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. He also says in Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And finally, God declares in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So understand that we're not just good people who happen to make mistakes every now and then. We're actually people who have sinful hearts. And truth be told, in a certain manner of speaking, have done nothing but sin for our entire lives. Because everything we do is tainted in some way by our sinful hearts. So by the way, the the common advice that you'll sometimes hear people say of like, follow your heart, not the best idea. In fact, I I can't think of any worse advice (laughs) than following your heart. Um, And this understanding of of human nature as sinful, I would say, is one of the most relevant teachings uh, in the Bible to the lives that we live today. First of all, it just fits with the kinds of things that we see in this world. Um, You'll remember C.S. Lewis's quote from the beginning about Christianity being the the lens through which we see uh, everything else in this world and through which everything else just makes sense. And uh, that's certainly true with, with human sinfulness. So why are, like, wickedness and selfishness and conflict and hatred and greed and selfish ambition so pervasive in this world? Well, it's because we have a sinful nature. The, the biblical teaching of, of the sinful nature helps us make sense of the things that we see all around us. And not only that, but this biblical teaching of human sinfulness also gives us insight into how best to approach various things that can otherwise be rather challenging to know how to approach. And there are four examples of this I'd like to share with you. Uh, Four ways in which the biblical teaching of human sinfulness guides us toward wisdom, both as individuals and even as societies. And just understand, I just give these things as a few representative examples of among many that we could give. So first, our approach to parenting. Uh, You know, many secularly-minded parenting experts uh, seem to think that children are inherently good and simply in need of positive guidance in their lives. This usually means guiding them to discover themselves and to express themselves as if those were two of the most important things that they could ever do. And if a child's behavior is ever harmful to others, then we're just supposed to reason with them. (laughs) Because certainly every child is reasonable at heart and can therefore choose the best path for themselves if we'll simply give them good reason to do so. So the next time your two-year-old is throwing a temper tantrum, just try to do a better job reasoning with them, right? And see how that goes. Thankfully, though, the biblical teaching that we have a sinful nature keeps us from these uh, nonsensical ideas about parenting and helps us see that the most loving thing we can do for our children 
is to correct their foolishness and to discipline their disobedience and to lead them to joyfully embrace God's wisdom for their lives rather than their own natural inclinations. Then a second way, the biblical teaching of human sinfulness guides us toward wisdom is related to the emphasis on self-esteem in much modern psychology. We're told that the key to having a happy and healthy life is to have a sufficient level of self-esteem. And that the reason for so many of our difficulties is that we have low self-esteem. Yet, if you read the Bible enough, you might actually come to the conclusion that our issue isn't that our self-esteem is too low, but that it's actually too high. That we actually already think we, we esteem ourselves too highly. Even many of the individuals who might at first seem to have low self-esteem are actually often rather consumed with themselves. So instead of thinking about how to love and serve other people, they're often preoccupied with themselves and their own desires. And so maybe the best thing we can do for them isn't to encourage them to have higher self-esteem, but rather to direct them to esteem God more highly in their lives. Now, moving on from a focus on individuals to a focus on societies, and again, just with some representative examples, uh, the third way uh, the biblical teaching of human sinfulness guides us toward wisdom is in the economic system that we embrace. You know, just as an example, there are many who believe that communism is the best way to order or structure a nation's economy. And, you know, I can see the draw of that, especially for those who believe that people are inherently good. If you believe that people are intrinsically good, and therefore capable of selflessly working together on a mass scale to achieve some sort of human utopia, then honestly, communism sounds like a great option. Unfortunately, though, that is not the world we live in, and the biblical teaching of human sinfulness leads us to recognize that and to adopt an economic structure that accounts for that. And it's my personal belief that capitalism does that the best, or at least very well. Um, I think that one reason why capitalism has historically been so successful and led to such prosperity for nations is because it harnesses our natural self-interest and uses that to promote economic benefit. And there are also other more positive theological reasons why I believe capitalism is the best system, but one reason why it works so well is because it wisely accounts for the the self-interest that's so often associated with our sinful nature. Then finally, a fourth way in which uh, the biblical teaching of human sinfulness guides us toward wisdom is with uh, regard to criminal justice reform efforts that seem to be quite popular in some circles today. Uh, on his website, George Soros writes an essay in which he explains that the reason he's done so much to support what he calls reform prosecutors is in an effort to get people, especially minorities, to trust the criminal justice system. And he believes that if we can just persuade historically oppressed groups of people to trust the criminal justice system, then they won't act in a criminal way any longer. 
So that seems to be the main argument he makes in his essay. Now, I want to acknowledge that these are some complex issues, and I'm not certainly not suggesting that the answer to all of these issues is, is a, a simple one, or that the issues are simple. And yet, I'll just say that that argument really ignores, it has a fatal flaw, in that it ignores the biblical teaching of human sinfulness. The fact that we have a sinful nature means that we should expect people to be much more likely to commit crimes if they believe that they can get away with those crimes. You know, why not steal if thieves aren't punished? Why not vandalize someone else's property if vandals aren't held accountable? And so I can see how George Soros's efforts to elect reform prosecutors might be a good idea if people were inherently good. And if the problem was merely one of trust between the public and the police. But the problem, of course, is that we're not inherently good, but rather inherently sinful. And that we therefore need to have a reliable and functioning criminal justice system to keep our own sinful natures in check. Now, please understand my purpose in sharing these things isn't any kind of political agenda, uh, but rather simply to help us appreciate the immense wisdom that we find in the Bible and the way in which embracing biblical teaching really does equip us both for fruitful living personally and for the wise ordering of society. And these, again, are just a few representative examples among many we could discuss about how embracing the biblical teaching of human sinfulness can, in some cases, even enable us to have more wisdom than the experts when it comes to choosing the wisest and best approaches to various situations. You know, I'm reminded of what David says in Psalm 119, verse 99, where he says, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. However, the main emphasis of the Bible isn't merely on how to account for the sinful nature and our approach to various things, but rather on what God has done and is doing to deliver us from our sin. You know, through Jesus, we can actually be changed in a fundamental and supernatural way so that instead of having hearts that are sinful, we can have hearts that love God and that yearn to follow God's ways. It's like God performs a spiritual heart transplant on us, removing from us our, our old sinful heart and replacing it with a new heart, which effectively makes us into a new person with new desires, new priorities, and a completely new perspective on life. As 2 Corinthians 5.17 states, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Friend, if you're far from God today, that's what you need. You don't just need to clean up your life or develop some healthier habits or try to be a better person. No, you need to be changed from within. You need to experience a change of heart 
That's so radical that Jesus actually refers to it in John 3 as being born again or born a second time. Just like in a physical birth, what happens? A new person enters the world. Well, likewise, that's what happens spiritually when Jesus changes a person's heart. And that's what you need, right? That's the only thing that can remedy the sinful nature that we inherit as a result of our lineage tracing back to Adam and Eve. Yet that's not the only problem that that we have that needs to be fixed. You see, as a result of our sin, we stand condemned before God as well. Our sin deserves and even demands God's judgment. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus took that judgment on himself in his death on the cross. When we couldn't reach up to God, God, in his mercy, reached down to us and sent his own son to bear our sins on the cross. Just as in Genesis 3.21, God had to slaughter an animal in order to clothe Adam and Eve with acceptable garments. Jesus also was slaughtered on the cross as a full and sufficient covering for our sins and our shame. That pattern of substitution that began with God's provision of animal skins for Adam and Eve finds its ultimate fulfillment in the substitution of Jesus on the cross in our place. And then three days later, Jesus rose from the dead as a decisive display of his victory over Satan and sin and death. As was predicted so many years ago, In God's statement to the serpent, the woman's offspring would indeed inflict a mortal blow to the serpent's offspring. And the result of all of this is that everyone who turns away from their sin and puts their trust in Jesus for rescue can experience eternal life with him in heaven. The closeness to God in the Garden of Eden that was lost in Genesis 3 can be regained through Jesus for all eternity. As the Apostle Paul explains so well in Romans 5, 12 through 21, just as sin came into the world through the one man, Adam, eternal life comes into the world through the one man, Jesus. That's why theologians will sometimes refer to Jesus as the second Adam on the basis of this passage. Just as the original Adam's sin resulted in condemnation for the entire human race, the ministry of Jesus results in forgiveness and rescue for all who put their faith in him. So if you haven't yet received the forgiveness and rescue Jesus offers, I can't encourage you enough to put your trust in Jesus. Even today, Again, the message of Christianity isn't try harder to be a better person or engage in this or that religious ritual, but rather 
Look to Jesus for rescue. Look to him. You know, sin is like quicksand. The more you fight against it and the more you try to overcome it in your own strength, the deeper you sink into it. Let Jesus pull you out. As Romans 6.23 so famously says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord.